You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. I don't know about you, but growing up, I never once heard a sermon about Shifra and Pua. I grew up in a Baptist congregation that raised its children on Bible sword drills and memory verses, and not once was the story of these two brave, uppity women midwives to a people enslaved by an Egyptian monarch, saviors of the newborn Moses, never once was that story told from the pulpit. Not once. Now you and I are into our second journey together through this section of the church year known as Year A with the Gospel of Matthew as our thematic guide. And I don't know if you know or not, but the Christian calendar has a three-year cycle. So each year, a different synoptic gospel is used as the lead gospel. And each Sunday, the lectionary gives four to six passages to the church and to the preacher, which gives one a bit of latitude when choosing a focused passage for a given Sunday. And it's been three years since this text was put before us. Three years ago, I preached on this text to an empty sanctuary because we were still in lockdown from COVID. It's been three years since we considered this story of Shifra and Pua, and we could have heard other texts today, but I will confess to you right now that I cannot skip over this story from Exodus. I just can't do it. Not until this ancient tale of delightfully audacious and courageous women is as well known as the stories of Joseph and Jacob, of Abraham and Moses. In our text today, generations have passed since the days of Joseph. We heard part of his story last Sunday. He became the stuff of legend. His wisdom and his skill navigated the people of Egypt through seven years of great production and seven years of drought. And his keen planning provided enough food and provisions for the nation itself and for the desperate migrants and refugees who showed up at their borders seeking help. His own family came to Egypt, found safety, settled down, made a home there, and prospered. But now those memories have long since faded, and the country's moved on, and a new leader has taken power, a king who, the narrator tells us, knew not Joseph. Times have changed, the storyteller is telling us. And the king is unnamed, And although some may speculate as to who this 
king might be. As the story unfolds, I think, the fact that the king is unnamed is important because we will begin to feel uncomfortable because we may recognize the type. The change begins with a denial of the people's history in the story, a refusal to remember the stories of the past. Joseph's story is forgotten, and as that chapter fades from the people's memory, an unscrupulous leader can manipulate the people to their advantage. So we have a ruthless leader that not only doesn't tell the true stories of the past, but they also expertly spin lies about the present day, finding a useful scapegoat in the country, a group that you can pin the troubles of the day upon. You can ramp up fear and anger against a perceived outsider. And so we can imagine the king is feeding the fears of the people, painting those Hebrews over there as a threat a threat to the country, as disloyal, as devious. It is a masterful weaponization of nationalism and the demonization of outsiders. The king says, look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and vaster than we. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply. And then, should war occur, they will actually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. Do you hear it? The us and them language, which denies the Hebrew people of their story, their shared story with the Egyptians, the story of how Joseph saved them all, that is the move of a tyrant. It otherizes a group of people over and against a dominant group. And it's a move we see all throughout history and our history, too. Once upon a time, German immigrants were labeled as swarthy and their immigration undesirable. Later, Irish Catholics were stereotyped and dehumanized, and then the next wave of immigrants comes along, and they're from China. And they bring much-needed laborers to the western part of the United States, but then the economics start to change, and there's a downturn, and then fear spreads that those Asians were a racial risk to the country. And so in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, banning Chinese laborers from immigrating to the United States and prohibiting legal Chinese immigrants already in the United States from becoming citizens. The ban would be expanded, because that's how it works, right? To the Philippines, to India, to Japan. And the federal law emboldened some states to go even further. They passed alien land laws to ban Asians from owning land. California was the first one to do so in 1913. Many Western states followed, including Washington State, where I used to live, and others in other parts of the world. Minnesota, for some reason, Florida passed one. And the Chinese Exclusion Act was not repealed until 1943. 
It was the first and only federal law designed to prohibit a specific nationality from becoming U.S. citizens. Make no mistake about it, it was reprehensible. It was immoral. It pro was promoted by fear and racial animosity. It targeted an entire people, and it was passed by elected officials and signed by the president, President Arthur. This is part of our history, one that we must not forget, lest we be led astray by demagogues who rise up and use fear to divide us and to wield power. So the king of Egypt not only others the Hebrew people, but he defines them as a threat. They are the enemy. They are a hidden enemy, but they are in plain sight, just waiting to turn on the Egyptians. It's a lie, of course, right? It's a lie. But it taps into the fears of the people. Those other folks over there, they're a threat. They are not like us. They are sympathetic to our enemies. And if you notice, if you read the Pharaoh's words closely, the fears are contradictory. They will multiply and they will take over. They will fight against us and they will leave the country. Well, which one is it? Will they leave or will they attack us? Will they take over or will they join our enemies? Notice that the lies don't have to make sense because the prejudice and the fear underneath them isn't rational. So the stage for horrific oppression is set. The people have forgotten their history. Their leaders engage in deceitful rhetoric to scapegoat a vulnerable minority. And the next step is the move to action, to injustice, to exploitation and violence. And so the Egyptians placed the Hebrews into forced labor, crushing labor, the story says, as the Hebrews built great cities for Pharaoh. The inhumane actions of the king, however, his plans to oppress cruelly the Hebrews, they fail. And as they abuse them, the writer says, so did they multiply and so did they spread. And the Egyptians came to loathe the Israelites. You see, working the slaves harder did not diminish their numbers. Cruelty doesn't bring a sense of security to the people. It doesn't achieve the goals of reducing the manufactured threat of high birth rates, which is the king's argument in the first place against these scapegoated Hebrews. But it does feed the divisions, doesn't it? The prejudices which the Egyptians have been told they came to loathe the Israelites, the narrator tells us. The othering and the scapegoating, that's all done their work. And now there's this intense emotional guttural reaction from the Hebrew people, the Egyptian people that enables the king to dial up the violence even more, to be more cruel. After all, they're not like us. They're the others. Now, if the king had been advocating in good faith, perhaps he might have reviewed this royal program of oppressive labor. Maybe he would have run a cost-benefit analysis and determined that this program was a failure, but he, instead he doubles down. 
He ups the temperature on violence. He exploits the, the slaves for much cheaper labor. And then the violence begins to spiral out of control as the inhumanity of both the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people increases. We know this to be true. The dehumanization of marginalized others leads to the acceptance of violence and opens the door for even more terror. And it's here that our Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, enter into the story. Two women, two named women are dragged before the king whose name is still curiously omitted, isn't it? And the two women, Shifra and Puah, are commanded to do the most horrific deeds. The king says, when you deliver the Hebrew women and look on the birth stool, if it is a boy, you shall put him to death, and if it is a girl, you shall live. She shall live. The 12th century commentary writer Abraham Ezra proposed that these two women were likely managers or supervisors over large groups of midwives. So hence the importance of calling these named women into an audience with the king. The king now demands the death of any newborn baby boy. And here in his horrific decree, the narrator clues us in to what is a fault in his reasoning, to which the king is oblivious. He sees the threat to his empire only in the male children. They are the ones that are going to grow up to be a physical threat, an economic threat, a political and military threat. He sees no such potential in female children. How could women pose a threat to his power? By resisting, right? An ancient example of civil disobedience, if I ever saw one. It's only now in 17 verses into the first chapter of Exodus that God is mentioned. And the midwives feared God, the storyteller says, and did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them. They let the children live. Fear of God is a biblical idiom. It's a concise phrase to speak about a person's way of life, a life that is shaped by moral and ethical understandings of right living. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the writer of Proverbs instructs their readers. The two women, you see, have a spiritual core which is centered in the shalom of God. They are virtuous and wise, and that groundedness in God will guide them through these dangerous times under Pharaoh. Well, this new plan to murder newborns, to limit the population growth of a marginalized people, fails just as all the Pharaoh's previous plans had failed. It fails because two enslaved women who are outside of the halls of power resist the dominant narrative of fear and find ways to skillfully transgress against injustice. After a while, they're called back to the king to account for the presence of all these Hebrew baby boys in the world. And the women shrewdly exploit the ethnic prejudices which the king himself 
holds and has been utilizing in his campaign against the Hebrews. They put up their hands. Oh, these Hebrew women, they are too strong. They are too hardy. They birth babies on their own before the midwives can even make it to the birthing room. I wonder how they kept a straight face as they said this to, to Pharaoh. But somehow he accepts their concocted excuse. Why? Because it aligns with the stereotypes that he holds against the Hebrews. He is undone because of his own lies. And then from there, the foolishness of the unnamed king is further exposed. All along, he has assumed that males are the greater threat to his power. He fears their physical strength, their numbers, their perceived political power. But in the end, in the end, it is the women who defy him. The women who set the stage for God's liberating purposes that will unfold in Exodus. The midwives refuse to be complicit in oppression, and the narrator tells us that it is their spiritual grounding in God that enables them to act on the side of justice writing. And inasmuch as the midwives feared God, he made households for them. The two women are not destroyed by their resistance, but rather they flourish, and they are able to enjoy a blessed life. As the story unfolds in chapter 2, which I did not read for us this morning, the coercive power of the king unravels even more as even more women join in defiant acts against the edicts of the king. The unnamed mother of the infant Moses and his sister conspire to save the baby, while an Egyptian princess, the very daughter of Pharaoh acts as an ally, fishing out the baby in his wicker ark from the Nile and adopts this seemingly abandoned male baby. In this dramatic chapter, I think the ancient storyteller gives us a guiding narrative which extends beyond this ancient tale or a single point in history. The author, I think, is warning us against dehumanizing acts of power wielded against marginalized people, wherever that may occur. We, the readers of the story, must recognize the weaponization of prejudice and fear when it is used to divide us. The language of us and them when it is used to scapegoat those who are labeled as other. And the appropriate response to such oppression, Exodus suggests to us, is resistance. But it is resistance rooted in spiritual wisdom, in the fear of the Lord. Our reading from Paul's letter to the church in Rome is a Christian example of that ancient Jewish wisdom. Remember, Paul writes to Christian communities who are living in the very capital of the Roman Empire. And he is urging them to refuse to be conformed by the political ideologies of empire and instead be shaped by their collective faith practices 
by the faith community's countercultural way of being in the world. Resist empire, Paul tells his readers. Re refuse to be co-opted by a dominant narrative in our world which tells us that our value is in what property we acquire, what social status we achieve, our career path, our zip code, our skin color, our gender. Instead, Paul says, take on a new way of being in the world. Present your body, your whole body, everything that makes up who you are as a human being. Present that as a living sacrifice to God, to a God who sees you and knows you, who loves the entirety of who you are and what your true self is. Don't listen to stories of division and otherness, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, Paul says, so that you can work out what God's will is, what is good, what is acceptable, what is complete, which seems like a tall order for any one of us, right? The good news is that Paul does not see this as an individual or a personal endeavor. The work of renewing our minds occurs in community for Paul, a community which itself is being shaped by God's countercultural narrative of justice and shalom for all the earth. Look around today and the voices of division come from places of power, don't they? Narratives of fear of the other, the demonizing of marginalized groups, it's everywhere we turn. Book ban lists and anti-trans legislation, the labeling of vulnerable groups as dangerous and therefore legitimizing injustices are on the rise. Resist, the writer of Exodus urges us. Resist. In the first half of the 2022-2023 school year, 874 unique book titles were banned in school districts across the country. Let that sink in for a moment. Resist. Read a banned book. Give a banned book away. Start a banned book club. Attend school board meetings. Volunteer in our local libraries. Resist. Be an ally. This weekend, there was a racially motivated mass shooting in Jacksonville, Florida. The shooter apparently first attempted to access an historically black college campus, but was turned away by a security officer. Then wearing a bulletproof vest and a mask, armed with military-styled rifle and a handgun, the man went to a nearby dollar store opening fire both inside and outside, and killing three black folk. Just last weekend, a woman was shot and killed in California for displaying a pride flag outside her shop. Resist. 
Resist the narratives which demonize others, which inspire this fear and hatred, which target marginalized folks. Resist. We must be allies. Display a pride flag. Demand our leaders and our schools tell the true stories of our history. We should know about the Chinese Exclusion Act. And we should feel ashamed. We must know the good and the ugly of our history. The parts of which we are proud and the chapters of our history which are shameful. We have allowed the louder voices within Christianity to promote a version of our faith which is idolatrous. This dangerous myth of Christian nationalism, of Christian domination and exceptionalism, they have been co-opted by those seeking power, influence, and wealth. And whenever we see Christianity defined by hatred, we must push back with love. We must dig deep into the rich traditions of Jesus and we must love just a little bit more. We must welcome outsiders with just a little bit more radical hospitality than before. We must embrace the marginalized with just a little more grace. We must proclaim God's liberating work with a little more courage. Resist, the writer of Exodus says. Offer up our whole lives to God and allow God to transform us into a new creation, Paul tells us. A new creation that cannot, will not be silent. So folks, we must tell the story of Shifra and Puah. We must sing songs about the long line of women who resisted. We must tell their stories with hope, tell their stories in confidence that we too, we too can be midwives for God's amazing transformation of us, of our communities, and of all the world. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.